But if they were over the rail, I would approach and stay a good 10 or 15 feet back and just raise my hand and introduce myself. I didn't want to scare them. A lot of times they're looking away, they're looking at the city or down at the water. But I say, hi, I'm Kevin or I'm Kevin with the Highway Patrol. Is it okay if I come up and speak with you for a bit to get their attention and to get their permission? I think so many people in that state of being where they are feel so neglected and so down that for somebody to come up, an authority figure, and ask their permission of something really starts it off, sets a good tone. We are about to dive into the minds of heroes that battled through adversity and came out the other side transformed into something greater. Entrepreneurs on a mission to change the world. Athletes and performers with incredible ability for higher execution. Individuals making social change because they're unsatisfied with the status quo. Doctors pushing the boundaries of knowledge to push the needle on human potential. People that made the decision to be the hero of their story. This is Heroic Minds. Welcome back to the Heroic Minds podcast. On today's episode, we have Sergeant Kevin Briggs. Kevin spent 18 years stopping over 200 Golden Gate Bridge suicides. Kevin has story after story, tactic after tactic, lesson after lesson. In this episode, we cover a lot. Kevin shares what he learned in his years both saving and sometimes losing lives on the bridge. What is the first thing Kevin would say? It's probably not what you expect. What about the things you should avoid saying? Well, Kevin has his four comments that he always avoids. Even though Kevin became educated and trained on de-escalation, it wasn't those skills that allowed him to help guide over 200 people back onto the safe side of the bridge. It was listening. It was understanding. It was patience and authenticity. It was being honest and true, staying away from cliches, talking human to human, allowing the individual to clear the darkest thoughts possible and think with some instance of clarity and rationale. Kevin doesn't consider himself a hero. I'll let you hear his story and decide for yourself. Before we get to this episode, remember to check out our friends at True Local. High quality meat individually packaged and shipped right to your doorstep with individual handwritten notes in each box. You receive your box, you pull it out of the, sorry, now recyclable packaging, put your meat in the freezer, the rest goes right into the recycling bin, Obviously, remember to read your handwritten letter first and take a glance at the recipe that comes in every box so that you can use their high-quality meat to make some high-quality meals with your cooking skills. So again, that's truelocal.ca, T-R-U-L-O-C-A-L.ca. Send them an email if you have any issues. All I've heard is nothing but the best on their customer service, their response. They'll do whatever it takes. They'll go to the distance so that you are satisfied. They're an amazing company. And now they also are selling Three Gen Organics honey garlic sausage and thick cut bacon. Those are my friends at Three Gen Organics that are now partnered up with True Local to deliver incredible product, incredible service. It's actually from a farm that was passed on from father to son to now the next son. Three Gen Organics are an awesome company, awesome people, just like our friends at True Local. So, What's better than meat arriving right to your doorstep with a handwritten letter and a recipe and you know it's coming from good people? That's truelocal.ca. If you're going to give them a try, use my discount code HEROICMINDS25, all capital letters to get $25 off a regular size box and $10 off a personal size box. Last but not least, I won't spend much time on it, heroic clothing, it speaks for itself. 
those that are willing to find opportunity and challenge, those that align with the messages we share on this podcast, those that realize their life is an opportunity to be a hero in every room they enter, that's Heroic Clothing. That's www.theheroic.site. The link is in the description of this episode and the discount code is Heroic Minds. All capital letters, type that in during checkout and you will get 15% off your entire order already. Let's get to this episode. You're working and you get a call not knowing exactly what's going on and you show up. That very first time, that first experience, if you can recall, what was that day like? You know, that was a tough one. Um, that was a long time ago. I, I started with a California Highway Patrol in the East Bay over by Oakland. And it wasn't about four or five years before I was able to get back to Marin. And I'm from Marin County. And Marin connects to San Francisco via that Golden Gate Bridge. And I had been over that bridge many, many times. But I had no idea the suicides on that bridge. I had no idea these things occurred there. Um, and when I got this call... I started working my way down there, uh, and I'm thinking, all right, what am I going to do? And I didn't have a plan. And usually, as an officer, you, you're trained, and you think about things, and you have a plan kind of before you get there of, of some sort, whatever that call may be. But I really didn't have a plan, and I showed up, and I didn't know what to say. It was a young female standing over the rail on this I-beam on what we call the cord, and past that is nothing. It's 220 feet down. Um, and I was scared. I was scared for me. Am I going to get in trouble if I blow this? But I was really a lot more scared for her. What if she lets go and, and jumps? Um, it was a very trying period. And I didn't know what to say. I think I said a lot of things wrong. But uh, I learned a tremendous amount. And what I did with her, as I do with most people, I'll discuss in just a little bit. But um, I think she saw the empathy in me anyway, even though I was pretty pretty much blowing it as far as things to say people love you and you have a future and don't lose your life on this and i was about saying everything wrong but i think she saw at least well this guy does care so okay uh, so uh, initially was it kind of the and i don't want to say clichés because i don't think that's fair was it the remarks that maybe we hear in movies that that were the the go-tos right out of the gates was kind of those again not cliche but those those lines that we hear that we think should help people right right and i think i said all of them in my time dealing with her and she kept looking down at the water which is a bad sign um i think she was on the verge or was homeless and had some drug issues you know, she was given up, and she just didn't see tomorrow. And it was very, very tough. And, of course, it's it's almost always cold out there, so that didn't help the situation. But we chatted, and finally I calmed down a little bit. Um, and she was rather calm. She was she had made her peace. She was ready to go. But I, I think in just talking to her for some time and knowing at least somebody was there, I think that helped. Wow. And... You know, she finally did come back over, and I did something with her that I did with everybody all the way up until I when I retired was, you know, I asked them, what did I do that was good, and what did I do that kind of hurt this situation? And I don't remember exactly what she told me, but it made me dig into myself and want to become better at this because it's something, the look in their eyes, the look in, in a person's eyes when they're giving up hope and when they don't see tomorrow, but then the look in their eyes – if we can get them to come back over that rail and start life again, uh, it's, it's a whole, whole different view. And it was fascinating, and I really wanted to be a, a part of this and see if I could help folks. 
So I, I started talking to some senior officers with the patrol and some of the Golden Gate Bridge workers to try to better myself. So it was some years in the making. Um, and I'm still, you know, I, even though I don't do the work down there, uh, I still want to be better at it because I travel and, and teach it and talk about it now. So I'm always trying to be on the forefront of what's going on with suicide assessment and how can we help those who have lost hope. At that first call, and in this initial part of, of your journey through this, was there any psychological training or suicide de-escalation training that you had gone through initially, or were you feeling this out on your own until a certain point? I had no training. This was totally on me. Uh, and it was terrible. It was, it was, I say it was a disservice. Not only a disservice to those folks who were actively suicidal, but a disservice to myself as an officer if somebody was who's going to go talk to those folks. You know, how did, how can I be prepared? Um, it was terrible. It really was. It was a very bad experience. Even though the individual did come back over, I was winging it the entire time. At what point in your career or the number, I guess, of, of people you had shown up to in this similar state at what point was it that you did start to receive professional training, or did you ever? I did. It was a, um, a few years later when I went through what we call crisis intervention training, and that's catching on more and more and more with departments now. And that helped. That was a good start. Um, it wasn't until many, many years later, almost when I retired, when I was able to go through the FBI crisis negotiator school, and that helped me tremendously, but I was almost retired by then. It, it should have been the other way around. And the funny part is now I teach with the FBI when they come out here to teach a course for negotiations. I'll go in and talk for a couple hours. So it's a lot of fun, and to see the new negotiators, um, it's really cool. Wow. Wow. Now, in these experiences, so you, you show up to these individuals that from the readings I had done online, they, online, they were already on the other side of the railing most times, it, it, it appeared. So you show up, no idea what's going through these individuals' minds. I think a question everyone would have for you is, what is the first thing you started to go with? What was the first approach? Did that change or did you have a standard protocol that, that you started with? It changed as I progressed in my career and I learned more. So, what I found out for work for me anyway was if someone was over the rail, so to speak, and mind you, I had people who were in the parking lots who were writing suicide notes, and then we would get them up on the sidewalk walking back and forth, um, you know, thinking about contemplating going over that rail. So, it, was, it ran the gamut. But if they were over the rail, I would approach and stay a good 10 or 15 feet back and just raise my hand and introduce myself. I didn't want to scare them. A lot of times they're looking away, they're looking at the city or down at the water. But I say, hi, I'm Kevin, or I'm Kevin with the Highway Patrol. Is it okay if I come up and speak with you for a bit to get their attention and to get their permission? I think so many people in that state of being where they are feel so neglected and so down that for somebody to come up, an authority figure, and ask their permission something of something really starts it off, sets a good tone. In the very powerful image online, you're kind of leaning on the railing, almost in a more casual stance. Was that on purpose or was that by accident? How would you carry yourself, I guess, that way? A little bit of both, actually. I usually will try to dress like them. Like I said, um, most people who have been on that bridge knows it gets really cold down there. But if they're not wearing a jacket, 
then typically I won't wear a jacket. I want to feel and go through everything that they are. I want. I don't want to be more comfortable than they are. And by being there for them, I'm not crossing my hands, trying to – I'll even turn my radio off because there's other officers there generally holding back pedestrians so I don't have to listen to the radio. Uh, and as far as cell phones, I don't want anything to do with that. I want this to be a connection between me and that person. They have my full attention. I'm not looking around. I'm not looking at ships or seals or porpoises or anything else. I'm looking at them. They have my full attention. So whatever they want to talk about or whatever I can throw out there that, that may help them, you know, this is going to be a, a very, very in-depth conversation between us. Wow. And, and another big part of that is that – I want to let you know that let's say I can't break through and I'm not cutting it. I want to be able to call somebody else in because this is not the Kevin Briggs show. Even though I've been getting, you know, I get a lot of press through the years for doing this. There's many, many other people doing this same thing around the world. And it's a big part of this is leaving the ego at home. It cannot be the Kevin Briggs show out there. It's about that individual who I'm dealing with. And if for some reason we're not making connection and I can't develop that rapport, I need to look at bringing someone else in. How long would it be? Or I guess maybe you went more on how they were, their state, their situation, but how long would it generally be till you knew, okay, this isn't for me. We need to call someone else in. You know, a lot of times, maybe 15, 20 minutes and you'd get a pretty good feeling. Okay. You know what? This just isn't working out. Let me try something else. Maybe we need a female officer, whatever that may be. Wow. Okay. And it, you said, uh, trying to feel how they are, whether that be temperature. But I read online, one thing you learned was that you don't say, I understand, because you had said something extremely powerful is that you really don't know exactly how they feel or or understand how they feel. And how do you approach it without saying, I understand? What is the response when they tell you something? Uh, You know, there's four things that I try to stay clear of every single time. Um, as far as what I, what I say, and it's you should calm down, I understand, things will get better. Those four things I try to stay clear of, and I can go into, into each one here, but if I say, you know, you know what you should have done? Well, when somebody is in a state that they are in, suicidal, over the rail, you know, this is like that stage four cancer. For me to tell them, you know what you should have done, that's the wrong place in time. But I can say something like, you know, have you tried this? Have you tried something else? And then to move down the line, you talk about calm down. Um, has anybody in the history of telling someone to calm down ever calm down? <laughs> Very you true. Know, usually yeah. not. Yeah. Usually not. <laughs> and then to say, I understand. So we have, you should calm down. I understand. Things will get better. So if we go on to, I understand. I've been through some things. And we'll probably discuss those today with, with cancer and head injuries and, and divorce and all sorts of things. Uh, some heart issues, but I don't know what's going on with those folks. If I say I understand, I think it slaps them in the face, and I think that would be anywhere. It does. I could be having a a conversation with someone in a coffee shop or something, but to say I totally understand where you're coming from, I don't because I'm not them. And another one is to say things will get better. I don't know if they will, but at least they would have a chance of things getting better, and I hope they will get better. But for me to tell them, you know, I understand exactly where you're coming from. Things are going to get better for you. We just got to make it through the day. That's not right. And, mm-hmm. you know, if that person really relies on me and they do come back over that rail and we take them down to one of the local hospitals for an evaluation, uh, if things go very poorly, 
in a couple of weeks, they could be back up on that bridge, if not sooner. And if I'm the one there and they say, Kevin, you told me you understood and things are going to get better. They got worse. Well, how am I going to develop any kind of rapport with this individual? So I try to stay clear of those plus uh, why. You know, why are you here? Why did you do that? It places blame and it shuts down a lot of rapport we're trying to build. Okay. It, I have to ask the question. It, it comes up often in, in the podcast and, and in work I'm doing on the psychological side of, of all of these incredible stories is, is the idea of control and that we, we do like to have a sense of control in situations. It, it reduces that anxious feeling we have. And I'm just talking generally in life. It's, it's nice to know and feel like we're in control of one ourselves. Even better would be the situation. Now, is there a sense of, have you noticed a sense of control giving somehow, or how do you do it, give these people a sense of control? Is that something you've experienced through these, these interactions? Yes, the sense of control goes to them. We are taught as police officers to go into a place and quell the chaos and, and make things calm and do all of this. But in these types of situations, you really can't. Now, I could make it safer. I could make it so the pedestrians aren't coming around taking pictures and, and yelling at them and these types of things. And I, you know, I can make it safer for us. If that individual has a gun, then we need to get back and, and these different things. But if it's just what I've dealt with you know, more than 99% of the time, someone over the rail who was suicidal – they call the shots. Now, I can be there and we can try to talk about things um, and have that interaction, but really it's up to them. And I want them to come back on their own. I think that's very, very important. I think it takes a lot of courage to go over that rail to begin with. If you ever see how tall that bridge is, 220 feet over that rail, there's, there's nothing else. And it's very windy and can get very cold and foggy. But to have the courage to come back over that rail onto the sidewalk, I think that takes a tremendous amount of courage to do that. So I want them to do that on their own without me having to grab them. And were there times, were there more times where you did have to grab individuals? You know, I only grabbed an individual one time. I was working with a sheriff deputy and it was so long. We did, it was eight hours with a gentleman. And we would kind of trade off back and forth, and we had planned on grabbing him, uh, grabbing an arm. He had his arm through one of the slots in the bridge, and we ready that we grabbed his arm. But we had been out there so long, his arm was so cold and clammy and damp because it was foggy that we slipped off. He jerked back. He didn't fall, but um, you know it was a very very bad scene. So I swore to myself then, I'm not going to grab anybody. They're going to come back on their own. For me, that's that's what it was. That's what it was about. And so you said that instance was eight hours. I don't even know if this is really relevant. It's just curiosity. How long was the average experience of, of, of talking these individuals down? Probably a half an hour or less. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I think most of the time if we get there, they do come back. Mm -hmm. um, I have lost some, of, but most of the time, if we get to someone, they do come back. And when you approach, again, I'm looking at this visually and, and trying to see the situation, but subjectively, from your point of view, how is it that you remain calm? I know initially you'd said that, that you were even scared that, that in that first instance. And so 
obviously to think clearly, you don't want to have that sense of fear over you. So what is it that you do, uh, I guess, during the, the instance, but then also after to, to deal with that fear that I think is, is probably a little bit of innate response as a human being? How is it that you stay in that clear state of mind to think rationally about what you're going to say and how you're going to say it in that situation? You know, it took quite some time, but in talking with my management, um, and of course managers change as, as every job, but I would have a chat with them and I always, they always have my back. They know I'm not going to do something ridiculous out there, but knowing that they were there for me and let me do my job, try to get as much training and, and support as I could before I went down there and then thinking about these and and what may happen and what they might say. I went so far as to take breaks or or um, like be in a coffee shop and writing down things. What could set me off? If somebody says something, like I have two boys, if they you know, if they said something nasty, hey, when I get off of here, I'm coming and I'm hunting you down, what could people say to set me off? And what could I say to counteract that so I'm not getting mad? How can I keep my composure? And I did this with a lot of scenarios. So I knew management had my back and they would support me. I was figuring out things to say, and I and I told myself, you know what, this is on those folks over the rail. I'm not hurting this cause. I'm here to help. If they decide to jump, it's on them. Now, mind you, it doesn't make it any easier. It's still tough, but I'm going to do whatever I can to help these folks. Now, we realize that by the time it gets all the way up to this bridge, you know, people have most of the time um, have been seen professionals. Maybe they were on medication. Um, they've been through a hell of a lot. So this is a, a very much a tough one when you get this call to do that. But if I have it in my mind that I'm going to go in there with a peace of mind, do what I can, they make the call whether they're going to jump or not. And if they do, that wasn't my fault. I'm certainly not going to contribute to that. I'm going to do everything in my ability to help them, but they make the call. As I learn more about these heroic mindsets and, and people like yourself, it's always amazing how it's not a mindfulness approach, but you use tactics to to very much be in the moment. It wasn't, you know, never in that answer there did you say we were planning ahead and, and the goal is to get the individual off the bridge and, and focusing just on that, it was, no, I'm going to do what I can in this moment right now. And obviously has worked out. And I think that's a, a really powerful point. As you have these conversations, I'm curious how much of it is, do these people open up or is it mainly you discussing and talking, talking them down? How much dialogue comes from you versus them? Is there an average or have you had experiences where the opposite happens. They say nothing or you say nothing. Everything has happened up there, yes. <laughs> and mind you, I handled I handled four to six cases a month for, for around 10 years. I mean, that's a lot of people. So I've had folks who would not talk. I've had folks who wouldn't shut up. But <laughs> that's fantastic. I love it when people talk because then they're venting and they're getting things off and I'm learning things. Like when I teach new negotiators, if you're talking all the time, you're not learning anything. You're telling them that stuff. It's you want them to talk. I go with 80, 20, 70, 30, something like that. I want them to be speaking 80% of the time throughout the whole conversation. There's times, of course, when I may speak more, but throughout this whole conversation, I want them to speak way more than I am 
because it allows people to vent. And I think that's a big one. Just imagine you're out with a couple of friends or, or one friend and you have a lot going on and you're talking. Give it half an hour and you've been talking for a bit. You know, you're going to feel a lot better just by venting. So that really helps. I'm a big believer in that. And besides that, we're getting a lot of info from them that we, that we might be able to use. So that's a big one is let people talk. Don't interrupt them. Let them talk and be there for them. And was there a tactic to provoke them to speak? Was, it, was there a way you delivered questions? Was it obviously open-ended questions? But was there a specific way that, that you kind of probed at them to, to open up? Um, when they let me, after I would say, hi, I'm Kevin. Is right if I come up and talk? If I could get their first name and personalize everything, that's a big one. Wow. Instead of calling them Mr. Jones or whatever, feel as if I'm talking to you. If I'm calling you, you know, your last name um, every single time, that's not as intimate, as secure as it would be if I say, hey, Ben, so what do you think about this? And tell me about a happy time in your life. What was going on? How did you feel? I want them to be able to pass the time with me, almost like we're old friends, and see how that goes. I want them to, to gain a li- you know, little more respect for themselves and for me and to get it to where they want to come back over that rail and give life another shot because it's going to be tough. It's not easy. Hmm. But I want them to feel comfortable. And if we can talk about, I say, uh, commonalities create comfort. So right. if we get on and we start talking about, you know, ask them, hey, do you have any animals? Do you have any pets? Yeah, I got this little dog. And they're telling me, like, well, I have a chihuahua. And it's actually on my phone. I may show them a picture of the chihuahua. And we can talk about that for a while. And that helps build rapport. So whatever we can to make that a, a very much an, an intimate rapport building communication. What was the most common issue with these, these individuals, was there one? And I don't even mean demographics. I, I mean, these, you know, individuals up there on some of the instances I saw online and that I actually saw on social media, there was a, a cop a situation where someone had, had a disease that was incurable. And, and that was one reason. Was there a consistent kind of theme with these people? Most of them, uh, three things, actually. Most of them suffered from a mental illness, whether diagnosed or not, generally depression. If they had been prescribed a medication for the mental illness, they stopped it, and that seemed every single time. You know, and then they felt like they were a burden to their families. And I would ask them, well, have you spoken to your family about this, how you feel like being a burden? Uh, no, they haven't. But those three things – you know, especially the meds, and I wouldn't bait them. I wouldn't ask them, hey, are you taking a medication for any kind of depression or anything? No, I, I wouldn't do anything like that. I would ask them, are you taking a medication for anything? Are you taking aspirin for you know anything for a heart issue, any, for any kind of medication? So most – this is 99% of the time. If they were taking a medication, they stopped it, and that's a big one. Is there a general – process that, that you go through with these individuals that, that you've either realized or that maybe it's a psychologically studied uh, process of, of the dark place they're at when they when you show up to the process of, of them actually coming back over the rail and and, and officially being being in a safe situation um, is do you know that process is it I, I don't know is it is there a self-reflection in the middle to from darkness to something else? 
You know, I think so. Um, many times I think they're in such a dark place that they don't see tomorrow. So if I could shine a little bit of light on that, and not by lying to them or, or BSing them, but by being there and let them, letting them know that somebody cares, that I'm here for them. Because many times I think they've been shoved around. Maybe they were homeless, and maybe their family gave up on them. I don't know. Or you know, they've had drug issues or whatever it may be. Um, I know for kids, adolescents, it may not be too many things. They feel the life's over because they're seeing just five, six, seven years in the future. And that's a tough one because they generally we don't even get a chance to talk to the kids. They walk up and they just jump and they're gone. So we want to get to them before anything like that happens. Um, and it's, it's about building that rapport with them. And that's, that's the big one. So Incredible. It's starting out in New High. I'm Kevin. Maybe they have some questions on me, and, and I'll be, you know, and, and I don't talk about things that happen with me so much unless they want to talk about something. Um, they may mention something. You don't know what it's like to have cancer. Well, I did, and, and I'm happy to talk about it with you, and we can share something, and commonalities create comfort. Mm-hmm. But I also explain to them the process, too, because they think, okay, now I'm over this rail, and I got this cop talking to me. Well, if I do come back over, then I'm under arrest, and that's just going to compound everything, and it's a big mess and a nightmare. But I explained to them, most of the time, these people have done nothing wrong. They're just suffering. So I tell them, you know, when you come back over, not if, but when you come back over, I have to place you in handcuffs. That's only because it's our policy. And then I'm going to take you down to one of the local hospitals, and that's the end of it. You're not getting a ticket. You're not going to see me again. You're not going to be arrested. I'm not going to read you your rights. That's it. You're not in any trouble with the law whatsoever. So that helps a lot. That that really, really does. Because then they think, maybe they have this little bit of thinking of, all right, I'm thinking about coming back over. But we didn't talk about anything. And they go, damn, I don't want to come back. Now I'm in trouble. And now I'm going to go down to the county jail or San Francisco jail. and Nobody wants to go there. But you know, I try to get ahead of that by explaining that to them. What is the most interesting or I guess crazy, wild, unexpected conversation you've had with someone on in that position? I know you talked about showing pictures of, of your dog and Chihuahua and having that conversation. Was there any other peculiar conversations you've had? You know, not so much as conversations as as situations. We once had a lady who driving a car northbound on the bridge going from San Francisco into Marin. She stopped in the lane and she was very, very high on drugs. And she, you know the drink Snapple? Yep. She had a Snapple beverage with her, the jar. She was pouring it into the cap and then taking a syringe, sucking the liquid out of the cap and then injecting that in her. And she tried to get out of the car. We were trying to keep her in the car. Um, but she did get out. And this is all just before I got there. And then she was trying to stick the other two officers who were already there, stick them with the needle. And she got over the rail. And as I got there and I tried to talk to her, she was hanging on with one hand, holding onto the rail. The other hand was holding the needle, trying to still jab us. And she was screaming and swearing at us. And she just let go. Wow. Uh, very bizarre. That leads me into a, uh, another kind of topic I wanted to dive into. 
is your own self-care. And when you cannot save someone, do you even approach it as that? And, and also, how do you cope with, with that situation? It's tough. And especially if you've been speaking with someone for a while. I lost a gentleman, an African-American man, probably mid-30s, and he was over the rail, and he kept looking out at the city and down the water. He would answer most of my questions, but he, he wouldn't tell me what's been going on in his life. He didn't want to describe it, and he wouldn't give me his name. I gave him my name, but he turned around, and he, he would chat with me, and he was just a really neat man. He was you know, well-dressed well-groomed, was not under the influence of alcohol or drugs or anything, whatever had been going on in his life. But he turned around and he shook my hand and he shook my hand three times. And on that third time that he shook my hand, he said, Kevin, thank you very much, but I have to go. And he jumped. And that just breaks your heart. You watch him. And I, when I teach this to folks and when I talk to this to folks, I tell them, do not watch the act if you can avoid it. Now, the act for this would be watching him go all the way down and hitting the water. But I do because I mark the body, and of course, that's it's forever in your head. You can't take that trauma away. You can lessen it as time goes by and with some therapy, but I see it. I see it like it was yesterday, these things. Uh, and it just breaks your heart to, to watch this. So, you know, something like that. Um, I get with management, and we have what's called the Employee Assistance Program, EAP, for law enforcement. And we can see a counselor free of charge a number of times. So we can take advantage of that. And then when I promote it, I highly encouraged officers who work down at the bridge or whatever they may saw, a nasty crash or something, to use that. And it does help. And I think instead of going out on stress and possibly not coming back, we have had officers go through the the therapy and then talk therapy and things and come back and they're ready to do the job again because most of us want to be on the job. We want to do a good job. We like helping others. But sometimes it gets so difficult based on what we see, trauma's tough, that we need some help to get past it. You know, We don't realize uh, what the coping abilities out there and, and what we may need. So if you have the support from your family and your managers, you know, your office, and then you can get some help if needed. That's what it's about. And of course, your own coping mechanisms. What are we doing for ourselves? I like that because it wasn't an intricate, sexy, I do this, I eat this, I do this exercise. I do. It was simply taking advantage of the protocol and process that exists to help with this situation. Exactly. Um, that's that's what it's about. And we can eat healthy. I, I will tell you, I don't. I've gained a bunch of weight <laughs> since I've retired. And I tell my boys, one's, one's is a 16 and one's 19. I was looking at my younger one the other day. We were trying on some sports coats. And I was going to give him one of mine. I go, hey, Travis, this one doesn't fit me anymore. I go, I'm too fat. And he goes, Dad. He goes, you know the body is 60% water. He goes, you're not fat. You're flooded. <laughs> so that's compassion. Right? Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I like his approach. He learns from his father. <laughs> um, it's a dismal subject. We've got to have some humor somewhere. Yeah, totally, totally. There was a story about an individual that you have connected with since that, that had come back over the rail and, and was contemplating suicide, obviously. But you initially said you 
you don't usually like to reach out or, or see the people after they've come back over. One, I, I want to know why that is exactly. And and two, the story of, of Kevin, if you could go into that story. But I think first is, is, yeah, why would it be that you don't want to see the individuals after? Well, it's people say, Kevin Briggs, you, you've saved so many people. And I don't like that be honest with you i don't think i've saved anybody i didn't rush into a burning building and then pull them out or anything i was there on a very dark day for folks and i helped them get a little bit of light into their life so i assisted them i helped them which in my opinion is a much better way of saying it um kevin Berthea, a hell of a guy actually we just spoke sometimes we get to go on stage together and do our presentations and we were just in north north carolina last week doing it so it was wonderful It was really cool but um Neat guy, I don't follow up with folks generally because it's not about me. I have no reason to follow up with these folks to see, hey, how you doing? Remember me? I saved you. I, it's, right. it's terrible. <laughs> no. Right. And I don't want to be a trigger for them. Sight, sound, smell, whatever that may be. I want them to be happy. Maybe even if they can, you know, forget that day. Mm-hmm. That's, that's That could be a very, very dark day. Well, and now when you showed up that day with him, it sounds like it was – uh, at about an hour and a half, I think this the story wrote. And, and right. how, what was that process like to ultimately right. have him come back over? And his and what was his issue? I think it's an extremely powerful story. Again, because of, and I don't want to harp on it too much, but it wasn't this big, drawn out, sexy, complicated idea. It was simply being there. And and um, to before you actually, you know what? Before you go into it, the quote that that he has is, "I honestly feel it could have been anyone in the world." And if it wouldn't have been him, I wouldn't be here today. I needed him. I needed who he is. I think that's important. So I'll, I'll leave it over to you to, to give us a, uh, I guess, a snapshot of what that experience was like. Sure. So I received a call of a man. I can tell you the, the, the story here relatively quick. But I received a call of a man on the sidewalk on a cell phone saying that he's going to jump off the bridge. So I started proceeding down the sidewalk on my motorcycle from Marin heading towards San Francisco. And as I neared the North Tower, I saw the description of him. Looks like the guy. He has a cell phone in his hand talking on a cell phone. So I stopped my motorcycles um, maybe 50 feet back or something. And as I'm getting off of my motorcycle, he looks my direction. Looks like he's looking at me. And he immediately turns and just jumps over the rail, the four-foot rail. And I yelled something to him. I can't remember what it was, but I yelled something to him. And he reached out and he grabbed the rail, swung around. And if you can imagine your body just leaping over this forefoot and then slamming into it as you reached out. I mean, it was amazing. It was a miracle number one. So he catches himself, flings back into the rail, and now he's on the other side. Now this, oh, two foot or whatever it is, I-beam that parallels the bridge ends by the two towers around the two towers is just this little bitty pipe and if nobody's if you haven't seen this picture it's it's quite amazing he is standing on this little pipe and when you see this picture you can tell by looking at he doesn't care there's nothing below that 220 feet down he has a t-shirt on and shorts and it's very very cold he has one hand in his pocket and the other hand you can't see it but it's up between his skin and his t-shirt so he's just tripoding between his two legs and his head. There's nothing holding this guy on. You know, a big gust of wind and you're done. So I didn't really see him until I got up closer, but I was still 15 or so feet away. And I saw the white T-shirt. I thought he was gone. And I asked him, hey, 
told him my name. I said, okay, if I come up and talk with you. And he wanted nothing to do with me. He was screaming at me, stay back, stay back. And I could still hear this. And and he was just screaming at me. So as this went along, eventually he got a little bit accustomed to me or used to me. And he allowed me to get a little closer and a little closer. And finally, I got up to where we could talk a little better. Anybody that's been on this bridge or any bridge, you know how windy, how the traffic noise is. It's very, very difficult to have a conversation. And to try to have a conversation like this is even more difficult. So it took quite some time before he allowed me to come up and speak with him. But when he did, I just asked him, man, what's been going on in your life? What's been going on today and why you're here? And he just started talking. And he started talking and talking and he kept going. And I would use a lot of um, the active listening skills. One of the big ones we use is called minimal encouragers. And it doesn't interrupt what they're saying. I give them my full attention and I would just say things like, wow, really? Man, just little things. So he knows that I'm there. And I kept looking at him. And he would look down and then he would look at me a little bit. And he just kept talking. And he talked for a very, very long time. He spoke a lot about what had been going on with him. He wanted to talk. He had had a rough, very, very tough time in his life. He was adopted. His birth mother wanted nothing to do with him. And that really hit him hard as he got older and realized this. His birth parents, or his, his adopted parents, loved him very much. But they divorced when he was around 13, and he thought he was the cause of this. He wasn't, but it wasn't explained to him, uh, and that hit him very hard. He suffered from a mental illness, so for him to combat this, he uh, stayed busy, and he played five or six different sports, and as long as he stayed busy, he was doing fine. But at night, late at night, when he would finally have to go to bed, that's when this um, mental illness really would hit him hard and he had a difficult time sleeping. So he would be busy, 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 tough time sleeping. It would just wear him out. He had a very difficult time. And as he progressed through school and got out of school, he thought if he started a family, things would get better. So he did. And he had a baby. But his baby was born a couple of months premature. So now he thought, what did I do to cause this? And his baby had to stay in the hospital. And when his baby was able to come after come home after a couple of months. So did a bill for around $250,000. So he's thinking, I can't help my baby. I caused my baby harm. I can't support my baby. He's just had it. So he drove up to the bridge that day, never been there. And in the course of an hour and a half or so, he was telling me all of this. And I'm thinking, what glimmer of hope could I provide this individual to make him want to come back over this rail and give life another chance, give life another try. So as he was telling me this, I kept thinking, I kept thinking, and the biggest thing that stuck out in my head was his child. Uh, had a birthday coming up in a couple of months, so I started focusing on that. Don't you think you want to be there for your, for your child's birthday? And do you know that if you jump today, your child has a much greater chance of losing her life to suicide, and I focused you know, more on the positives than that, but I wanted him to be aware of that. And I said, hey, you can come back here any day you want, but I think if we can just talk about it, what can we do to help you today? And I want you to really realize the impact you're going to have on your family and on your loved ones. So as we started talking about this, I could see the glimmer in his eyes and he started breaking down a little bit. But I could see, you know what? I think I'm... um, getting his attention really well here. 
and it seems to be going good. And then I do this with a lot of folks is I want to give them some time to think about things. So I'll take a step back, but I'll ask them, I'm going to take a step back and let you think about everything that we've been talking about for a while, but I'm only going to do that if you promise me not to do anything until I come back up here. And he said, yes. So I took some step back, steps back and just looked the other way a little bit, let him have some time to think about things. And then when I went back up, he said, Kevin, I've been thinking about it and I said, I don't want to come back over. So that's about when this picture was taken um, that, that some folks have seen. And I helped him come back over. And then when he did come back over, I congratulated him. And then I asked him, what did I do that helped the situation? And what did I do that hurt this situation? And he said, you let me talk. He said, you didn't interrupt, interrupt me. You didn't tell me what I should have done. He said, you just let me talk and you were there to listen. And you told me really the reality of what could happen you know, if I jumped and, and talked to me about my child. So I took him down to the local hospital and, uh, and did not see him again for, for some years. But that ended well, and, and uh, he's still around. Amazing. I, again, it's, it's not this extravagant thing. It's, it, one of the things I've, I've looked at is often in, on a performance side of life, on a mental wellness side of life, however you approach it, it I keep seeing the common theme that we, w- the answer's inside us. It's often that we get in our own way. And you, in that situation, seemed like for a bunch of different variables, some we may not even be able to articulate, you were able to allow Kevin to get out of his own way and see the picture that he needed to at that time to get over that railing. And and I think that's that's so incredibly powerful to, for them to know that, that that ability's within them. It's just you clear the clouds a bit, let them see, like you said, tomorrow and a reason to live. So... Powerful stuff. You know, I'm I'm right there with you on that. I think people need a purpose, a reason, and a passion. You know, a, a purpose to live, a reason to get up in the morning, and then a passion to continue it. I think that's so so important. Sometimes, um, it may take years. Hell, you talk, you see folks that are in their seventies that are just finding this out. So it could take a long time until they really oh really wanted to paint. Now they're really doing well with painting and. And there's a number of individuals who are very, very famous who didn't find this out until they were you know, in their 50s, 60s, 70s, and, and beyond. Mm-hmm. So we're looking for things. And if we can help one another out to see, you know what, it sounds like you're going through a very, very tough time. I think validating and normalizing are two things that any of us can do that can really, really help a conversation just by validating someone. You know what? That sounds really tough. Validating what they're going through. Huge. And then normalizing what they're going through. When it comes to suicide, a simple statement like, and and it has to be truthful and from the heart, but you know what? Man, anybody that has been through so many things as you have, they may be thinking about suicide. Have you been thinking about killing yourself? Something like that when it comes to these deep conversations like this. Right. To normalize the situation and validate what they're going through can really help. It's amazing how you you said normalize too. I think in the the state we're in in society, it it really becomes an issue that uh, 
and I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, often we're going through tough things. And because of where we're at in society and media and, and how we're told to live and how life sh- in this ideal, the ideology of how we should live is that we should never have any issues or struggle or debt or, and I think having more conversations like this does exactly. And that's what I try to do with the podcast is look like we are, we have a ton of tools and tactics in us just as human beings before we even go to school to survive, to cope, to adapt and to normalize struggle that does exist inherent adversities in life, I think is, is so important. So I really appreciate that you said that that way. And and I took note of it and, and that's why I wanted to dive into it a little further. Right. I think people need, oh, I'm not trained in suicide assessment. And I don't know about that. Well, there's so many things that we can do. I'm not a trained counselor, never claimed to be. But I can definitely get to the point to where I can learn some tactics and some skills on how. And I think anybody could do this. It's all about empathy and caring and helping your fellow man. I could not agree more. I could not agree more. Now, let's let's dive into to your journey through your own mental state, mental wellness, and and you've been extremely open about depression that you live with. You know, I have a good support group. Um and I did I think I did everything wrong or backwards that I that I teach folks, but beating with the higher patrol, I I told them I will never date somebody on the higher patrol. But that's <laughs> what I've been doing. Been doing it for a long time now. Um so my girlfriend and I, she's a she's a sergeant on the patrol. And we've been dating for a long, long time. We have a house together and, and two chihuahuas together and everything else. So <laughs> Beautiful. But she gets it. She understands it. And I have good days and bad days, suffering um, and battling however people want to talk about their depression. But I have days that, you know, sometimes it'll be three days at a shot that I do not want to go out of the house. Whether that's anxiety, I, it's very, very difficult. But... I know it's going to pass. And that's what I want to tell folks is you may be suffering, but I'm going to tell you, man, it can pass. Sometimes we need more help. Maybe we need to be on medication. You know, I was at one point I was on two different meds and being in in law enforcement, I was in the military. I was in the army. I worked at corrections. I worked at San Quentin state prison and then the motor with the California highway patrol going up to sergeant. So these, these very, very macho jobs where we did not show a weakness and I'm going to tell you that was brutal. Um, it doesn't need to be that way. It doesn't need to be that way. We are not Superman all the time, any of the time. It's, <laughs> it's a matter of of us also. So until I really settled down, and this didn't happen until I was diagnosed with a with a heart issue, and I had to get three stents put in my heart. When we, but when a doctor comes in and looks at you, he goes, Kevin, there's something wrong with your heart. Um, we're going to have to see what what's going on. That really hit me. And mind you, I had testicular cancer before. I've had a lot of things, head injuries and things. But that's the one that kind of broke the camel's back, so to speak. So uh, with high blood pressure, high cholesterol, all these things that many, many people have, I say, you know what? Well, I got two boys and, and I want to be around here for some time. That's when I started, all right, what can I do? So things that I would have never tried before. Um, I started doing meditation. And I always thought it was a joke, and I don't know, I'm, not, I'm not even going to, I don't want to hear about it, I don't want to talk about it, no. But I did research, and I started doing transcendental t- uh, meditation, TM, and it really, really works, but you got to give into it. It's like anything else. Uh, it's, it's fascinating stuff, but I don't practice it enough, 
<laughs> but I can tell you, it really works with calming you down, giving you a good sense of reason and purpose, um, and it, it helps. And if you need therapy, go to therapy. Uh, I, I had a lot of trauma from, from different things, and it was recommended to me to go to therapy for, it's called eye movement desensitization. Um, and I did that, and I went through the therapy, but I told myself, I'm going to go through this with an open mind, not this type A conservative cop thing where none of this, this is a bunch of crap, this will never work. I went through this with an open mind, and it really does work. And the trauma that I was experiencing, the lady told me, she goes, I can't take that away. But what we can do is get it so those faces that you're seeing and all these things that are bugging you, instead of being two inches from your face when you're trying to sleep at night, they'll be way the hell out there 100 yards away. That's how she put it to me. And, and that's pretty much how it worked. But you got to kind of give into it and say, you know what? I want to get better. I, I think we all have the right. We, we have the right to be happy. But sometimes, you know, we need support. And if you don't have the support of others, a good support group, I mean, that's critical. You see women going out and hitting coffee shops all the time. I think that's one reason why women live longer is they get out and they talk about things. They're not just chatting about everything going wrong in their life, but they get out and they laugh and they're talking about things. Guys don't do that very much. Mm-hmm. I think if we did that more, uh, we would we would live a lot longer. But right. being, you know, accepting of these different things. Um, if you like yoga, that's cool. I tried it. wasn't for me. That's <laughs> one of them, though. But, you know, the, the meditation, if you need to be on medications for anything, man, you got to take the meds. I lost a very, very close friend who I grew up with since third grade last year because he didn't take his blood pressure medicine. And he had a massive heart attack and just passed away. He didn't have – this did not have to happen. He just, oh, it's fine. I don't need it. Boom, he's gone. So, you know, if we need meds, then be on them. Talk with a doctor. Talk with folks. Get a second opinion if need be. But I think you have the right to be happy. But sometimes, you know, it takes some work too. I love it. I am loving your mindset and approach with this. I I have to ask now, you dealing so triumphantly and courageously with your depression, uh, to me, and I say that not, again, not to, to put a cape on you and call you a hero. I just think because of the simplicity and and inner strength that you've decided to have and you've, you've found your why of why you want to do it. And it's because of your family. I think that that's what I mean by that. Now, your son, Kevin, as well, deals with his own depression. And I wondered how you both, both going through it, what your dialogue's like and how you two approach the topic. Right. He was actually suicidal for some time, and he actually, we call it non-suicidal self-injury, uh, about five years ago. He did that a little bit. Um, we went through therapy. I, I brought him over and said, hey, we, we need some help with this. So uh, he is through that. We had some good discussions. Uh, I learned a hell of a lot. A lot of the stuff I was putting on him because I was divorced and he was the elder of the two kids being 14 at the time. But I would tell him when I was gone, I say, Hey, I'm not living at the house, even though I'm just 10 miles away. I go, you got to handle this. You're the man of the house. If it floods, if there's earthquake fires, you got to take care of everything. And I dumped a lot of stuff on him and he thought he was the cause of the divorce. He had nothing to do with it. Of course not. But I never explained it to him. Almost like Kevin Berthea. He had some pressures from school. Uh, Some kids started using marijuana and other drugs and he wanted nothing to do with it. You know, he, he wants to play soccer, and that's his gig, study and do soccer. 
he had a lot of things going on and he just couldn't handle it. So he was ready to check out. But by getting some help, going through therapy and me realizing, okay, I got to really step it up here. I'm, I'm neglecting him and, and not doing what I should be doing, not saying the right things. I, I need some help with this. I can't be dumping this, all this stuff on a 14-year-old kid. What am I doing? So I learned a hell of a lot. But he, he, like I said, he really wants to play soccer. Well, now, current date, as of right now, he's been accepted into UC Davis. He's a freshman there, and it's a Division I soccer program, and he's on their soccer team. So uh, I just chatted with him today, and he's doing very, very well. I keep tabs on him. He, he's about uh, about an hour away. So he comes home on a lot of the weekends. We have to go get him and such. But as long as, as I keep hearing things about the future, he really wants to go to Europe. He's thinking about leaving UC Davis next year and going to Europe. He has some connections to be a professional soccer player. Wow. So as long as I keep hearing things about the future with him, I think it's good. But I want him to know, and I think every father should be talking to their kids, that I don't care what happens in your life. I'm here for you. It's about you. Everything that I'm trying to do, it's, it's building for you. You can call me anytime, night or day, and we can talk about anything. I'm going to leave the judgment out of it. I just want you to be happy. I'm going to give you a fully loaded question here. In a time, the time we're at where there's all this dialogue about people my age, your son's age, I'm 26, He's now he's 19, you said? Yes. Yeah. Where you balance the expectations of someone living with or dealing with, whether it's clinical or not, this uh, depressive state, how is it that you balance that that ownership or accountability, uh, which I know are, are quite ambiguous terms, but those those ideas with the support that they need? You know, I think, in my opinion, and I talk about this a lot in my presentations, I think we are always out of balance. I really do. But... <laughs> If we can focus on it and really think it, okay, did I talk to my kids in the last? Because there's so many people that are divorced nowadays. Um, it's 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 such a, a heartbreaking process to go through. But I mean, it's the way it is. I think to make that call, you know, what are they doing? What's going on? And just to let them know that you love them. Don't think that they know everything. Mm-hmm. That oh, they know I love them and they know I'm always there for them. Tell them and say, hey, man. I'll tell Kevin, I need you to make a little time so we can go have a chat. Oh, Dad, uh, man, I'm just going to sit down with you. You can have a cup of hot chocolate. I'll have a coffee. Just to let them know that I'm there. We, we'll take all the time we can at work. Almost every single person I know, we're, we're into our work. We love to work. We want to make the money. We, we get excited about it. We want to do things. We need a purpose. Sometimes we need a big vacation. But I think we all need a purpose to get up in the morning. Well, that purpose also is to be for our, there for our families. And I think we we twist that around a little bit because we think they're always going to be there and nothing's going to change. Boy, it can change. I talk to a lot of parents who have lost their children and I can't think of anything worse. Anything worse. And so, we, you know, these folks didn't do anything wrong. There's nothing that they did. Sometimes they didn't see it coming at all. There were no signs. Um, a lot of people suffer in silence. But, you know what, I think if we can just reach out a little more and try to be there for them and at least let them know, man, I'm here for you. We can talk about anything you want. It's going to be without judgment. I'll try to guide you with some things that I may know about or may not. And if I don't, hey, let's find out. 
If we need therapy, that's all right, too. Because back in my day, I'm 57 now, you would have never, ever thought about going to therapy. No, absolutely not. You'd have been ridiculed to death. Nowadays, oh, no, I'll tell them straight out. Well, I'll recommend it. Please, because like I said, you have the right to be happy. Let's try and figure something out. <laughs> I think there's more, I'll say from my own bias, um, hockey locker rooms and first responder organizations that need need to hear that message and, and how simple and normal you, you make it sound just by the way you say it. And I'm, I'm really starting to realize now why those people on their darkest days were so lucky to have you there. Now you put a really incredible quote in, in an article I read online that nothing inside is worth dying for. I wondered if you could unpack that or dive into that and what that means to you, maybe for, for people, but also maybe for you on a personal level. You know, what we think of things and what is going on with us and maybe what has happened to you. Um, we all have our, maybe a little trauma bag, the things that have happened to us. But if we can step out of that and sometimes it takes us to start the thing, you know, I'm not feeling right. Maybe I join a book club because a lot of people are very, very lonely. That's a big one being lonely, but we got to step out of that a bit. What can we do? Maybe you take a college course. Maybe you do see a therapist. It's just not worth it to live in this self-loathing part. You know, get out there. It takes some it takes some some guts to do sometimes too. It really does. And especially as you get older. Um, but it it does help and it does work. Get outside of that house. Even if you just get out and take a walk, you can feel better. Sometimes and, and I use myself as an example, I get just locked up in this in this house and I don't want to go out but it's a nice day I'll look through the window all day long but if I can get out and either take the dog for a walk or go for a little drive something small like that can be a world of difference so we have all these things that are bottled up but if we can get out and talk to someone I mean it really makes a big difference if we need therapy do it and like we used to with hockey players football players guys in the military and we all have this big macho thing um going on that we don't need help and we can handle everything. Well, I'm going to tell you, you can't. And I thought if I went and spoke to someone, I may lose my job. I may lose friends. I'll be ridiculed. Nothing like that happened. Actually, I retired from the higher patrol and I got millions of friends now and I get asked to go talk all over. So it's been <laughs> quite different. Way different. I'm a traffic cop. There I am giving, you know, 40, 50 or something talks a year. So it's been an amazing, very humbling journey. And on that journey there, before we tighten things up with one last question, I want to ask on this journey, there are those dark days that you talked about where you said three days at a time it's, and you'd said just recently, you know, you, you look outside and you see how nice it is on those days where you want to, you feel like you want to just stay inside. Do you put this pressure on yourself to get out? How do you approach that those days with, with getting out of that funk maybe is, is what, what is your, and I, I'm assuming and hoping it's another simple approach like you've had with everything else, but what is that process for you? Right. And you know, I, I tell folks, we all have bad mental health days. We do. But if that goes for a couple of weeks, we need to see someone. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be like that. But we get all, we all get overwhelmed and sometimes I'll get overwhelmed. I got all these deadlines and different things to meet and I'll be traveling these places and I'll say, you know what? Today is just too much. I'm not even going to look at the computer. Maybe I'll just sit down and, and I'll read today. 
read something not clinical or, or something, or I'll watch TV. I say, today, maybe I'm just going to go in the backyard for a few minutes. It's all right to do that. But if we wind up, you know, three days is a long time to be hanging out inside. But even if you get out and you're not feeling right and you're not being happy and it's just a lot of negativity in your head, if that goes on for two weeks, we need to see someone. We really do. I can't stress that enough. But uh, it's all right to stay inside and have those days where you just don't feel like going out. But we also have this time to where, you know what? It's time to get out. I'm going to push myself. I'm going to go to the gym. Maybe I won't even – I've had days to where I'm, I'll get all ready. I'll have my coffee, get ready, go to the gym. I'll get in the car, drive to the gym. And when I get there, it's not happening. It's not happening. So I'll drive back or I'll get a coffee shop for a little bit. These things happen. That's okay. That's all right. I used to really beat myself up. If I didn't go to the gym, I wasn't doing anything. I, wasn't, I was big time into bodybuilding. But nowadays, you're going to have bad days and good days. And it's okay to take a lazy day. Nothing wrong with that. But if it starts going more and more, hey, push yourself. Push yourself to get out of that house. And if you need to, man, get some help. You know, we have the 1-800-273-TALK. It's a crisis line. There, there's lots of research, lots of information on the computer. You don't have to feel the way you are. Um, there is a lot of help out there. Amazing. And I think the one message I give on, on those lazy days that are, are usually deserved, even though in our own mind we think, I shouldn't take the day off, I don't deserve it, I need to be working, I have to get all this stuff done, is that I, I approach it as that lazy day is a recharge day so that you can hit it harder for the next two weeks, three weeks, three months, whatever it is. There you go. Recharge day, so amazing. There you go. I like that. Recharge day. Absolutely. <laughs> totally agree with you. You need those. I mean, yeah. You can't be pushing it all the time. You're going to get sick and no. Totally. Especially with how fast things are going, which was our, our last episode with an anthropologist, uh, Dr. Catherine Bowskill, who was amazing. Uh, we talked about the pace of life and, and how our cognitive mind as in its development, where it is right now, is not totally prepared and armed for how fast things are going in, in life today. So that is a recharge day and it's almost, you know, science is showing that. So now- right. My last, my last question for you is, off-duty, traveling, retired now, do you go out of your way to avoid the bridge? Do you take time at the bridge? What is your approach to the bridge today? Um, I typically do not go down there. Uh, really, the only time I go down there is for interviews. I tend to get a lot of interviews from, from out of country for whatever reason, and and. They want to meet me down at the bridge, and we'll do an interview down there. And I don't stay clear of it. I pass it all the time when I'm going to the airport. I go to San Francisco Airport. Um, but it's like it's like anybody else that, that does things at work. When I'm going on that bridge, there's lots of points, of reference points for things that have happened, both good and bad. But I, will, I don't stay clear of it. If one of my boys said, hey, Dad, can we go down to the bridge, and you can tell me some of the things? Sure, we'll go down there. You know, I've had a lot of good times and some tough times. I don't avoid it, but I typically don't go down that way. I'm, I'm more a, of a rural person than an urban person. So I'll stay up my way and <laughs> I don't like all the traffic. <laughs> perfect. Perfect. Well, that is, that is fantastic. I, I can see why those people were so lucky to, to have someone like you. It's just amazing. Hard to articulate. So I, 
Yeah, and on behalf of those individuals and the families, uh, I thank you as well. I mean, it's it's amazing. I hope the speaking opportunities not only continue but grow because more people need to have. I mean, I, I was obviously very lucky to have this hour and a little bit with you, and I hope other people uh, do as well. So I hope the speaking opportunities grow. Thank you very much for having me. This has been uh, really, really cool, and I thank you for the work that you do. I think you're helping a lot of folks. That brings us to the end of another Heroic Minds podcast. If you are enjoying these podcasts, as always, feel free to leave a positive review on whatever platform it is you use to listen. And always remember to shoot me an email if you want to keep the conversation going. Any other topics you want to discuss, I love communicating with those that are enjoying these podcast episodes. And if you really enjoyed the conversation today, you want to take the conversation further with Kevin, check out his website, pivotalpoints.com. I will have it in the description of this episode, along with his book, Guardian of the Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. So the link to his website and that book will be in the description of this episode if you want to hear and learn more from Kevin. I'm Ben Finelli. This is the Heroic Minds Podcast. We'll talk again soon.